Good morning, Hillcrest. How are y'all doing today? Good, good. Who wants to get into God's word today? Yes, all right, me too. Um, Before we do, I would just like to say uh, welcome to all of you who are joining us here live and those who are online watching, welcome. Glad that you decided to worship with us today. Um, I'd just like to make a quick plug for a worship guide. Do y'all have one of these? Let's let's just review it for a moment. Um, On the back, my wife will appreciate this, on the, on the right-hand side, it says Fellowship Supper there from 4.45 to 6 p.m. It will tell you what the menu is every week. I literally just found this out like two weeks ago. Um, so if you want to know what the menu is, you can find it here. And it looks like we're gonna have barbecue sandwiches, chips, coleslaw, and dessert, which sounds really good right about now, right? And inside, you have a number of announcements, two inserts that I just wanna draw your attention to. The first is a sermon guide we'll be using here in just a moment. But this other is focus groups. Anyone in here want to grow in their walk with the Lord by show of hands? Who wants to grow? Okay, all of us. Yes, if that is you, I invite you to be a part of a focus group. Uh, we, we believe here at Hillcrest that we grow better together. And a focus group is a time where you can get together with a group of people and a leader and focus in on one specific thing um, and get equipped with certain skills Uh, So for instance, on the back, you see the men there are gonna be equipping you to disciple someone else. Um, You can also learn about doctrinal things. There's a class called Who is Jesus that we'll be offering that we invite anybody who doesn't know the Lord or people who wanna grow as evangelists, you can come uh, and learn about who is Christ. Um, And you can also just develop who you are in in Christ, maturity classes. And so I'll be leading a class on the commands of Christ and I, I, Uh, invite you to come be a part of. And here's my commitment to you. If you commit to one of these focus groups and you come and you stay with it and you are not equipped to grow in your walk with the Lord, you come find me and I'll treat you to some coffee. I would love to hear about that. That's a commitment. Y'all heard me say that? Likewise, we also have this afternoon, four o'clock in Northwest Hall, I would like to invite you to Discover Hillcrest, where if you're not connected to our church, you're not a member, but you wanna know more about membership or you would like to join, you can come to Discover Hillcrest today, four o'clock Northwest Hall, and don't tell Pastor Jim this, but we'll have pizza there as well. So I'm bribing you with coffee and pizza. Anyone love coffee and pizza? All right, so next Wednesday, the 21st, focus groups will start, and then this evening at four o'clock, we'll have discovered Hillcrest. Um, Let's dig into the word of God. We're in the book of Zechariah, continuing our Minor Prophet series today. Zechariah in your pew Bible will start on page 745 if you'd like to follow along. And as you're turning there, I'd like to say a word of prayer for our time. Holy Spirit of God, we worship you. We glorify you. And God, as we open this book, that you have breathed out, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand it, we would believe it, and we would apply it to our lives. More than anything, Holy Spirit, we ask that you point us to Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I remember the day that I was baptized. I've been walking with the Lord for some time, And 
the church I was a part of, the pastor said, well, if you're a believer in Christ, you need to be immersed in water. And so I said, that's what believers do. That's what I'm going to do. And I, I remember when the day came and I was going down into the water and I was literally trembling. I was so nervous. And the pastor baptized me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It was a Pentecostal minister. And I came up from that water. It was a Saturday. We didn't have our own baptistry. And so we went to a, another church on a Saturday, April 21st, 2004. I'll never forget it. I came up from the water feeling something I've never felt before. And it was cleansing. It, I felt clean in a way that I never felt before. I knew the sins that I was guilty of prior to that moment. And in an instant, God washed them all away. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. The water did not cleanse me from my sins. Did y'all hear me say that? No, the hymn got it right when, when we sing, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? But, but there was in the water a picture of cleansing. God doesn't just wash us and cleanse us. He does that by faith, but he gives us an awareness of that, a vision of it. He makes us conscious of it. And so when you go into the water and you go all the way under and you come up, you have a picture of what cleansing looks like. And that's what I felt the moment I came up. And now it is my desire today to paint a picture of cleansing for you. Not from the recollection of my baptism, as meaningful as it is to me, but from the Bible, from the word of God. And so we'll look at that in the book of Zechariah. Let me put it in context where we are by the time we reach the book of Zechariah. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you've noticed that we've been in the minor prophets. And if you've been paying attention, you've noticed probably a very similar theme to the prophets. Basically, Israel, you're sinning. God is angry with you because of your sin. You need to repent, and if you do not, God will bring punishment. Pretty much a summary of what we've heard. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah. And what you need to know is that they did not repent. And so God punished them. And the punishment was in the form of Babylonian captivity. Basically, they were hauled off into a foreign land as prisoners of an enemy nation. They thought that God was only bluffing when he said, I will punish you. And how many of us know that God never bluffs? Everything he says he will do, he most assuredly will do. And so by the time we reach the book of Zechariah, they have, been, they have come back from exile. They are now back in their land. And they've been there for about 20 years. But after their return from the exile, they're not the same way that they were before. They're jaded. Uh, Pastor Dustin Scott, who was the last of all, I don't know what he was talking about, me being last of all. He's the greatest. Pastor Dustin Scott preached last week on uh, the book of Haggai and how they, they weren't even willing to rebuild the temple. They're jaded. They, they feel as though 
our country is weaker than it was before the exile. We're under pagan rule and we don't like that. They're saying, man, God has forgotten us. Do God's people ever get discouraged like that today? Do we ever ask, what's the point? Do we ever look at the state of our country or our community or our families and get tempted to think, God has forgotten us? Or let's make it more personal. Do you ever look at your life and say to yourself, how can God love someone like me? Do you ever think of your past and the sins that you've committed and say, you know what, I'm so dirty. God can never have anything to do with me. My friends, God knows our thoughts. He knows what goes on in the secret places of our heart. And he so graciously gives us words of hope. And the book of Zechariah begins with a series of visions And he concludes with oracles about the Christ who is to come. More than any of the other minor prophets, Zechariah focuses on salvation rather than judgment. Now, we don't have time to cover this book in detail. It is the longest of the minor prophets and the most obscure. If you've ever just taken a casual reading through Zechariah, you will see visions and angels and scrolls. It's much like reading the book of Revelation only in the Old Testament. And so what I'd like to do is look at one vision that he has in the earlier part of the book and pull out one theme from that vision and focus on that today. And that is on the theme of cleansing. And so let's look at our text, Zechariah chapter three, verses one through five, and see what God's word has to say to us today. The word of God. Then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now, there are many things going on here in our text, but to summarize it in a simple sentence, I'd say this. God removed filth from Joshua and gave him cleansing Instead, he, he, Joshua, stood before the Lord in unspeakable filth. God acted in grace toward him, and God gave Joshua an exchange of clothes, symbolizing cleansing. Beloved, God knows that Joshua here at this time, the nation of Israel here, but also you and I here today at Hillcrest, We need a vision of cleansing. And so God gives us snapshots. He gives us portraits of what cleansing looks like in the Bible here, but also in the waters of baptism, in the Lord's Supper. 
And the main idea of today's sermon is this. God cleanses believing sinners by his grace. Some whole point of what I'll say today. God cleanses believing sinners by his grace. And what we'll find in Zechariah 3 is God giving his people a picture of forgiveness, a consciousness of cleansing. And we'll look at to that end, the need for cleansing, the deed of cleansing, and then finally, the means of cleansing. Notice with me the need for cleansing, and it is this, in ourselves, we are unspeakably filthy. Look with me at the setting of Zechariah 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is a courtroom setting. There is a hearing in the heavenly courtroom before God himself. You have Joshua, the defendant, who was on trial, and right next to him, you have the prosecutor. And it's Satan himself. The Hebrew word for Satan literally means the accuser. Now our text says that the accuser was at his right hand to accuse him. Verse one. I wanna say this to you. If you have breath in your body right now, you have an enemy. His name is Satan and he is ever looking for an opportunity to accuse you before God. He is so vile and so evil that he will tempt you to disobey God. And this enemy will convince you, he'll try to convince you that you can sin and sin and sin with no consequence at all. But then the same enemy, when you cave to the temptation and sin against God, he'll accuse and accuse and accuse to overwhelm you with guilt. He cheers for you when you're about to sin, but he rails against you once you've done it. He's your best friend before you sin, but he's your worst enemy after you've sinned. And so don't trust him. His mission is to get you to sin against God and then shame you for it. But you may say, so what? We have an accuser. It only matters if the accusations are true, right? I have bad news. The accusations are true. Look at verse three with me. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with what kind of garments? Filthy. The bad news is that in ourselves, apart from Christ, on our own merit, we are unspeakably filthy. This text is very clear, so let me be very clear. There are only two types of people in this room right now. There are only two types of people and the whole planet. There are those who've settled their legal matter with God and there are those who have not. There are those who are standing before the Lord in Christ by faith and those who are condemned by God. Make no mistake about it, we all come into this world standing in the very 
courtroom that Joshua is in in this text. Jesus will speak of this courtroom like this in John chapter three. He says, whoever believes in the son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. I just wanna say it right here, right now, as plainly as I can. Either you have faith in Christ at this very moment and thereby you have eternal life or you don't have faith and you're condemned. Either you're a disciple of Jesus and thereby all your sins are forgiven in him or you're still in your sins and you're condemned already. Either you've turned from your sins and you're trusting in Christ or you're literally standing before God with filthy garments on. There is no middle option. And my question to you today, and I pray that you will settle it before you leave the seat that you're sitting on. Which one are you? Are you at this moment trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Or are you standing before God with filthy garments on? This is a question of eternal importance. And so I beg you to examine yourself today so that you're sure about the answer. I want you to trust Jesus for cleansing, but I know that you must first be persuaded of the need. And so let's see what the Bible has to say about that. Paul says in the book of Romans chapter three, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. To go on in that same chapter, Romans 3, 23 to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And notice with me in our text here, Zechariah 3, verse three, as we've seen already, it says that Joshua is clothed in filthy garments. Now this word filthy needs some explanation uh, because we all live in Florida and our grass grows, you know, 50 inches an hour, right? And so you go out and you, you mow the grass and it's hot, you have on your hat and you come inside and your wife is prone to say, you, you are, you, what is that? What are you, you got grass everywhere, you smell bad, you are filthy, right? That's how we use that word. That is not what this text is talking about at all. This word, filthy, in Hebrew is the word pronounced soe. And it's a reference to human waste. It literally means excrement. The high priest is standing before God with excrement all over him. He's filthy. The Bible will say in Isaiah 64 verse six, but we are all like an unclean thing in all our righteousness. It's filthy rags before God. And so I want you to see the picture of why there's such a great need for cleansing before God, our very best, apart from Christ, our very best works are, are like offering up human waste as an offering to the Lord. Without Christ, we need cleansing. Would you agree with me? 
Let's go on from here to see the deed of cleansing. We've seen the need. Look at the deed. And the deed is that God acts in grace on our behalf. And so what you have is the guilty defendant, Joshua, clothed in filthy garments. And then you have the vicious prosecutor, Satan, standing ready to accuse. But praise the name of our Lord. There's an advocate. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Aren't you glad that the Lord is on our side? The apostle John says it this way in 1 John 2 verse 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate in that text is the word parakletos. It's the same word Jesus used to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse. It's one who is called alongside. And in context, at that time, it would describe the ministry of someone who was a, an attorney put on a permanent retainer by the family. And so that whenever there's a legal matter, they can call the attorney to come alongside and be an advocate in the courtroom. That imagery, that's who Jesus is for us by faith. He, he's the one that when we are even guilty, we, we stand in the courtroom with filthy garments on and Jesus rebukes the accuser on our behalf. And I'm so glad that he does. He doesn't say that we're innocent because that's not true. He doesn't ignore our sin problem and our filth, as we'll see in just a moment. He takes care of that. But he defends us from the accuser. He rebukes the accuser on our behalf. Now, there may be some here, even now, who are overwhelmed with guilt because of your sins. And I say to you, based off this text, bring your guilt to Jesus Christ. He will take it and he will silence the accuser for you. And what we notice in this text is not a weak, passive Jesus, but rather we see a mighty Lord who is an advocate for us before the Father, constantly objecting to the railing accusations of the devil. For someone hearing me now who is trusting Jesus by faith, you're a believer, but you, you constantly struggle with guilt and shame. I say to your accuser, even now based on this text, the Lord rebuke you. Friends, God acts in grace on our behalf. The good news of the gospel is that God sovereignly plucks brands from the fire and they never need to fear the flames of hell again. In verse two, God describes Joshua and us by extension as a brand plucked from the fire. The Methodist Founder, founder of Methodism, John Wesley, never forgot a night in his childhood when he was six years old. He was asleep and he was awakened to smoke and fire in his home. And he, by some oversight, was the only one left in the house. He was forgotten. And right as the roof was about to cave in, a neighbor 
who realized he was in there, reached into the window and pulled them out, literally snatched them out of the fire. That imagery was so vivid to John Wesley that he had an artist render that in a picture form and they gave it to him. He kept it his entire life. And right underneath the photo, he wrote this text, Zechariah 3 verse 2, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, that's obviously an extraordinary example. Not all of us, thank God, are sleeping at night and our house catch on fire. But the idea is that, spiritually speaking, every one of us who are saved by grace have a, have a picture of that. That's what this text is re- referring to. Is, is it not us who are, as a brand, plucked from the fire? When we are saved by grace, Jesus has rescued us from the fires of hell. And notice with me in verse four, he says, remove the filthy garments from him. This is God acting in grace. This happens the very moment you turn from your sins and you trust Jesus as Lord. This happens every time a sinner says yes to Christ. When the thief on the cross who lived his entire life in sin looked at Jesus next to him and said, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. At that exact moment, his filthy garments were removed. When the prodigal son was in the pigsty, and Jesus says he came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father. In that moment, His filthy garments were removed in the instant that we believe God removes all the filth, all the guilt, all the shame, and in a moment he takes away our sin and the punishment that it so rightfully deserves. By his pure grace, when we believe, God eternally separates all of our sins from us, sins past, sins present, sins future. He just takes them away. The psalmist gives us another picture of this in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. He says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, I beg you, I beg you to not forsake the grace of God, to to not stiff arm the Lord as it were, to, to have grace offered to you and turn away from it. I beg you, hear the word of the Lord. See him extending grace to you and receive it by faith. Come to Jesus and he will cleanse you. So we've seen the need for cleansing in and of ourselves. We are unspeakably filthy. We've seen the deed of cleansing. God acts in grace on our behalf. But you may ask how? How does he do it? Well, we'll look at the means. And the means of cleansing now are are God exchanging, exchanging our sin for Jesus' righteousness. There is in the gospel a beautiful picture of an exchange that happens. And we'll see it here in verse four. 
of our text. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You may be thinking, how is it that God can just wash away all sin, past, present, and future, just because we believe? Now, I wanna be very clear. God does not just sweep sin under the rug, amen? God does not just say, let bygones be bygones. You can sin as much as you want. And because I love you so much, I'll just, I'll ignore that. That is not in the Bible, and that's not what I'm saying here today. No, God does, what he does for us is gracious, but it's also just. He shows us grace and yet perfectly judges our sin. What I've been describing so far today, this decisive and gracious act of God to take away our filth, this act has a name in the Bible. It's one of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. It's called justification. And what I'll put on the screen is a a brief description of what justification is. Justification is a declarative act of God by which he establishes persons as righteous. That is in right and true relationship to himself. So go back to the courtroom imagery. We have Joshua on trial. You have the prosecutor, Satan, who is accusing And I know that in the room today, we have many legal experts. We have judges and former judges. We have uh, even some attorneys, some retired attorneys. And most of all, we have the greatest legal experts, those who watch reruns of Law and Order. (laughs) Yes, we know. We know how the law works. And we know that in every courtroom, you have a judge and the judge has his gavel, right? And when he strikes the gavel on the sound block, he's making declarations. He's He's, he's giving orders, order in the court, right? Now I've watched, Crystal and I, we watched countless episodes of Law and Order. I've watched enough episodes to know that usually it's the case that the jury determines guilt and innocence and it's the judge that determines the sentencing. But in the heavenly courtroom, God is judge, jury, and executioner. He's the one who pronounces condemnation or justification. And in justification, this is the imagery I want you to get. In justification, imagine God banging the gavel and declaring a sinner to be perfectly righteous. That sinner is forgiven and their sin is taken away. In a moment, the moment a sinner receives Jesus by faith, justified. And that sound is good news for believing sinners, amen? Paul will say in Romans chapter three, let's look at it together, he he describes this act of justification in detail. Beginning at verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see it? Verse 21, Paul says, the law and the prophets, including the prophet Zechariah, bear witness to this idea of justification. God declares sinners to be righteous through faith in Christ. He cleanses sinners who believe by his grace. And in verse 25, he basically says God displayed his son. He put him on display on the cross for the purpose of showing his righteousness so that at the present time, God would be seen to be just and the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. That's justification. Can you see it? In the cross of Jesus Christ, God conducted an exchange. When Jesus said, as I read this morning in our Bible reading, Mark 14, 15, Mark 15, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at that moment? On the cross, he was the dumping grounds for our sin and our guilt and our filth. On that cross, Jesus Christ became sin for us. He received our filth and our punishment and our sin and we simultaneously received his righteousness by faith. Do you see that? That's why our text in Zechariah 3 verse 4 says, behold, I have taken away from you your iniquity and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Jesus gets our filthy garments and we get the pure vestments because God exchanges our sin for Jesus' righteousness. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him. Who's the he? God the Father made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He made him to be sin for us in our place that we might become the righteousness of God. And so this exchange, this sweet exchange, what Martin Luther called this glorious exchange, it is the heart of justification And justification is the heart of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we are not just forgiven, but we are fully justified in the eyes of God. It is as if we stand before God, really in and of ourselves with filthy garments on, but now in Christ, we look just like Jesus before the judgment seat of God. That is good news. John Piper gives a quote that I think is helpful here. He says, we're not merely forgiven and left with no standing before God. God not only sets aside our sin, but he also counts us as righteous and puts us in right standing with himself. He gives us his own righteousness. And so God exchanges our sin for Jesus's righteousness and that is great news. Now, I'd like to conclude by just answering two questions today. Why is this important and what should we do? 
if what I've been saying is true, it has paramount importance for your life because what, where we go on judgment day, heaven or hell, is entirely dependent on what we're wearing before God. We will either be clothed in our own merit, standing before the Lord with no advocate, filthy, or by grace through faith, we will be standing before God clothed with pure vestments, with the very righteousness of God himself. And I do not put before you something that I don't even believe. The same gospel that I proclaim to you is the one that I rest my eternal soul on. If I were to go to sleep tonight and never wake up, I have full assurance that I will stand before God looking just like Jesus because I'm clothed with his righteousness. Do you have that assurance? Do you know where you will go if you were to die today? You can have that assurance. You know, there was once a construction worker who was carrying a bag of bricks behind him as he was walking and he had an atheist coworker who came up to him. He was a believer, but his friend was not. And he said, man, how, how can you be so sure that you're saved, that your sins are really forgiven? And as he was walking with the bricks, he took a few steps and he just dropped them. He said, well, how do I know the rocks aren't on my back anymore? I, I haven't turned around, I don't see them. And his friend said, well, you know, it's obvious, you don't feel the weight of that anymore. He said, that's it. By faith, I'm forgiven of all my sins in Christ, but there's a, there's a picture, there's a consciousness that happens. He removes not just the sin, but the consciousness of it, the weight of it, the guilt and the shame. And so it has been placed on Christ, my Lord and my Savior. The very moment, we place our faith in Christ, he gives us comfort and assurance. Not just that we've been saved by Jesus, but he gives us pictures as well in God's word, Zechariah three, but also in the waters of baptism. It's the most beautiful picture that God could have ever given us of what it means to be cleansed. And so I say with Paul in Romans chapter eight, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Dear Christian, be encouraged. The Lord Jesus Christ prays for you by name. What should we do? The apostle Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost and he was asked that question. He preached a sermon and the people said, what should we do? And this is what he said, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus and for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what Peter said, I will say, if you're here today and you do not know the Lord, as I've been holding up a picture of God's word to you, 
saying, this is the gospel, believe it. I beg you, repent and be saved. And maybe you need to be baptized. You've heard a lot of emphasis on that. Be baptized in obedience to God's word. And then he says, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, by which we made more and more like Christ. And so walk and live in such a way that you honor the Lord. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen.